Well, I've got a picture up here. Um, If you were to dare to walk into my son's room, this is the picture or the posters that you would see. Now, don't judge because these posters are a little bit outdated, but every time I walk into his room as a Houston sports fan, I am pretty depressed. I'm pretty depressed because none of those guys that are up there on those posters are now in Houston anymore. You may have opinions about that, but none of our sports teams are any better because they're not here. Praise God, that's bad news, but praise God, we have the Astros who are good news for us. You think about good news and bad news. When you open your phone every day, there is bad news that fills the news feed every day. Just think about the current news feed and the Delta variant COVID cases on the rise. Mask, no mask, shot, no shot. Afghanistan overrun again by the Taliban, it looks like, the Texas border in crisis Did you know that apparently in Texas, the new murder hornets are actually these acid-spitting land lobsters that are now here? Apparently, they don't hurt anybody, but that's the new murder hornet, apparently. Good news, bad news. See, good news has often come hard to come by. Let me ask you this morning, get a little bit more personal and say, what's the news feed in your life today? What's the good news? What's the bad news in your job, in your family, in your marriage, in your life? What's the good news? What's the bad news? As you think about your relationship with God, is there still that sin that continues to wreak havoc in your life, whether anybody knows it or not? Do you feel a distance from God or a nearness to God? If you knew that there was good news out there that made all the bad news pale in comparison. Would you want to know it? I'm here this morning to tell you that there's some great news that you need to know. A few months ago, I was sitting at a campfire with a bunch of other pastors who preach the Bible, and those are interesting conversations if you ever have the chance to, to get a hold of one of those. So we're sitting around the campfire, and the hypothetical question got asked, by one guy, and he said, hey, what three books, if you don't have, if you only had three books of the Bible to preach to your church, and that's all you had, what books would that be? And it was a fascinating discussion to go around the room and listen to different people talk about different books of the Bible and why they would choose different books of the Bible. And inevitably, the book of Genesis or Psalms or the book of John or Romans or Ephesians or Revelation got brought up. But every person, every pastor to a T said the book of Romans would be in that list. And then I pressed the question a little further. I said, what if you only had one book? And there was a noisy silence for about 10 seconds. And finally, somebody said, well, you obviously have an answer, so what would you say? And I said, beyond a shadow of the doubt, the book of Romans, if I only had one book to teach People who knew God or didn't know God, it would be the book of Romans. And the reason why is because Romans is is centered around God's gospel of grace that saves, that sanctifies or transforms you, and that sends us out. Let me tell you just a little bit of background on the book of Romans before we dive in. You, if you've got a study Bible that I referenced before, you can go read this a lot more than I'm going to explain this morning. But apparently the occasion for the writing is that people, um, when the church started in Acts chapter 2, and the Holy Spirit came upon all these different people in Jerusalem from different places, there was a band of people from the city of Rome that came, 
and they converted, converted to Christianity, and they went back. This is the longest book that Paul writes, and right out of the gate, what you're going to find is that it is saturated with gospel truths. And the reason, one of the reasons why is because he's never met these people. You think about all the different churches that Paul has visited and planted. If you just go through the book of Acts, you can see those. He's never been to Rome. He wants so badly to come to Rome. And so it's a long book with a lot of explanation about the scriptures. It's interesting because these Roman Christians had already planted, it looks like, a couple of churches in Rome without the assistance of any apostles. This isn't neat how the Holy Spirit works, that you don't have to have the celebrity apostle to do this, that God equips the church for his purposes and builds the church for his purposes. But something interesting happened with this church in Rome because clearly in Rome there were Jews that had come to faith in Jesus and then there was also Gentiles, people who worshipped foreign gods, who worshipped the king, who worshipped the Caesar. And they had very different views, but it's interesting because in that time, they, the, the Jewish Christians, the Jews in general, and the Jewish Christians got kicked out of Rome because of their influence because they're Christian influence, because they were the ones that were taking the little orphans and caring for them, and the influence of the gospel was growing, and so they all got kicked out. It would be like a certain group of people got kicked out of our church, and the other half stayed, and then they were able to come back, so there were a lot of problems in this church that Paul wants to address. But the central question that the book of Romans addresses is this. How does a righteous God, a holy, righteous, perfect, just God, have relationship with an unrighteous people? How does a holy God who is righteous, and we'll unpack what that means, and just have a relationship with sinful people, people who are unrighteous and unjust? That's the central question that Paul will answer throughout this book that we will dive into this morning as we look at the first chapter of Romans. So what is the good news? Turn with me to Romans chapter 1. See, Paul is just chomping at the bit right out of the gate. It's his longest introduction to any book that he writes because he can't wait to tell them about the gospel and the specifics and the content of the gospel in chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. So let me read 1 through 7. And we'll make some observations, and then we'll continue to work through the first 17 verses of Romans. So God's word says this, chapter 1, verse 1 through 7. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. He didn't choose this. Remember, Paul was a Pharisee. He didn't choose this. God called him on Damascus Road. He brought the gospel light to him. So he's called by God to be an apostle, one who's set apart for the gospel, the good news of God, which he promised beforehand, so this isn't something new, through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, so the gospel centers around the son, who was a descendant of David, a real person, according to the flesh, he was incarnate, and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, so he died and he rose to prove who he was, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received, what's the word? Grace. This is the gift of grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. 
So transformation for the sake of his name, that's the final purpose, that God's name might be glorified. Where amongst the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, do you see the sovereign work of God and salvation to call people to belong to Christ, to all those who are in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want you to look at those first seven verses, and if you have an English background, what you're going to notice is, or let me ask you, where do you see the first period? The first sentence end, you don't see it until verse seven. This is a run-on sentence. Paul can't wait to get this news out, and there's a number of things that, you need, that, that we need to look at. First, that the gospel, this gospel, the word gospel means good news, and in that day, good news was heralded. It was from the king to a messenger. The messenger would send the message from the king, the true message from the king, as an edict. And he would announce it to the people. And so the gospel is good news. And good news is meant to be shared. Good news is, is not just pithy advice that you can find in your Cosmo magazine. But this is the truth. This is God's word to us. And so this good news is actually not pithy advice, but it's a declaration from the king. That's what the word gospel means. And this gospel truth, what's the content of it? What is it about? Concerning what? Look at the text. Concerning his son. You see, the gospel is centered on the person and work of Jesus, and notice some things about Jesus, this son. It says that he was promised beforehand. So this isn't just God's attempt, like the Jews had rejected their God and fallen away and scattered in the Old Testament. So this is not, this is not a son that, that God brought to the forefront because the Jews disobeyed. This was always meant to be. He was the Messiah from old that the Old Testament spoke about to Israel in which they would one day know and have. And so he was promised beforehand. He's been from before. The prophets talked about him. Not only that, he's descendant of David. You can trace the Old Testament and the Messianic line through David according to the, what does it say? According to the flesh. That means that the son is the is eternal. That means that, excuse me, it means that the Son is incarnate, that He's become one of us, that He is not only eternal, but He is incarnate. He is made man, John chapter 1. So this Son is eternal. He's promised beforehand. He is not new. He is incarnate, and He's the Messiah, this Son that Paul describes here. And then He describes what the Son did, that He died, and He rose from the the grave is proof that he is Messiah, that he is who he says he is, that he is Lord, verse 4. And what have we received? Grace. Look, about, look at there at verse 5, though. It says that he will bring about the obedience of faith. You know how faith doesn't work? I'm going to obey, and that means that I have faith. That's not how it works. We like to put good works in that place. Well, if I work, then I have faith, and that's not the way the gospel works. You trust and have faith, and obedience follows for the sake of his name. So the gospel is this. It's the declaration, and here's your first point. The gospel is God's declaration about his son, and look at the result of what the son does in our lives. He transforms those who believe. 
You see the phrase, obedience of faith? See, the Son brings us into obedience. We kind of treat obedience as a four-letter word, but obedience to Christ is the mark of a Christian. It's also in the New Testament how the Holy Spirit is activated in our lives through obedience. Not only activated, but this is how we obey. So that's the good news. That's part of the good news and in general. But when you think about this point, this gospel declaration centered on the Son that transforms those who believe, there's a rub here as you think about what people make of the gospel in the culture that we live in, isn't there? There's a rub. We tend to, in our culture, redefine the gospel into all kinds of lesser things that aren't really about the sun. They become about our own prosperity. The gospel today, in many circles, becomes about social action, and social action isn't bad. There's implications to the gospel, but it's not the centerpiece is Christ not social action. Not only that, we often replace the gospel with our own works. You think about the world that we live in. I'm good. I don't need your God or the gospel of Jesus. I'm just fine, just the way I am. That's not the gospel. See, this is God's declaration about his son. We not only often redefine it in our culture to be something lesser than the son who transforms, we also replace, we replace some things. We replaced obedience and a pursuit of holiness with this idea of self-awareness and care and this emotionalism that if it fits into my comfort and, and helps me with my own identity and who I want to be, then I accept it. But this idea, at least lately in the Christian kind of evangelical movement, it's more about my own comforts and how I feel about myself than it is I've got to pursue holiness. I've got to pursue obedience to the work of the Spirit. And you see all kinds of examples, sad examples of this in our culture. I don't know if you're familiar with the guy, a guy named Josh Harris. And I'm not, ba- I'm not, I'm not here to bash on anybody. Josh Harris, maybe if you're about my age, you might have kissed dating goodbye with Josh Harris. He wrote this book about how you, instead of dating, there's courtship, and he became this megachurch pastor. But it was always interesting, even when he was a megachurch pastor, it seemed like everything he did was, was around himself as opposed to the gospel. And not too long ago, he came out and said, hey, I'm not a Christian anymore. I've done this deconstructing thing. But really what he did is he just dismantled it. He dismantled his faith. And then he became a proponent of talking about how, impo- how you need to go back. And I'm not saying it's bad to go back and see what you learned when you were a kid and, and reassess your faith in the sense of building it up. But that's not what Josh Harris did. He became a proponent of breaking down your faith. And really, The interesting thing about Josh and the sad thing about Josh and a guy named Carl Truman, if you've ever read any of his stuff, he wrote a book called The Triumph. What book? I read part of this book and I'm trying to remember its name. Carl Truman wrote um, The Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a great read on our culture. Um, But one, one of the things he recently said in a sad way, in a prayerful way about Josh Harris is, He's stayed, one thing has stayed the same with Josh Harris. He has stayed in his own center. 
It's never really been about Christ. It's been about himself, and it still is, even though he's replaced his Christianity with his deconstruction. And that's a sad story. And yet we are susceptible to these things as well. Do we pursue Christ and allowing him to transform us? Do you, this morning, let me just ask you, do you know the Son? The gospel is centered on the Son. Do you know the Son? Is he in the spotlight of your life? Are you, through the Spirit's work, slowly but surely, are you being transformed by the Son? That's a marathon. That's not, that's not a, a sprint. And so God's grace continues to work in our lives, and we fall and we get up again. But are you being transformed by the Son? Well, what does that look like? Give me an example of what it, that life would look like. Look at Paul right here. I love this. In verses 8 through 16, let me just read through this. And I want you to catch, I want you to catch something. I want you to catch the tone. I want you to catch the enthusiasm that Paul has as I read this. Because here's the situation. Paul, everybody knows Paul, okay? These people in Rome know Paul and who he is. But he's never come to visit them. And so maybe they're thinking, does Paul care about us? We want him to come see us. Or maybe he's afraid because there's so many things going on in Rome that are hard. People have already been kicked out of Rome. And so is he afraid? Does he care? Look at this response from this letter. First, and he's speaking to these Romans. First, I thank my God through Christ for all of you because of your faith is proclaimed in all the world. Think about all that this church has been through with the separation of the church and people having to be kicked out of the city because of their faith. For God is my witness whom I serve in my spirit and the gospel, there it is again, of his son. So he's talking about the communion that he has with God. That without ceasing, look at his love and shepherding care for the Romans. This church, these churches, that without ceasing, I mention you, verse 10, always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So was he avoiding them? Did he care about them? Of course he did. For I long to see you, that I may be impart some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged. Was Paul a celebrity preacher that just thought whatever he brought to them was going to be what they received? He was going to receive from this church mutual encouragement. That's the heart of a real pastor. that we might be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. Verse 13, for I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, and then parentheses, but this far I've been prevented. Prevented by who or by what? By God. God hadn't allowed him to go to Rome yet. Ministry is that way oftentimes, where you want to go one way and God sends you somewhere else. Life is like that sometimes, where you want to go one place and God does something else. In order that I may reap a harvest among you as well as those among the Gentiles. And look at verse 14 really carefully. I am under obligation, literally indebted, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. That's his calling. That's who God had called him to, Acts chapter 9. He owes them. But look at verse 15. Do you see the tone here? I'm eager. I'm prayerful. I can't wait to see you. I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are also in Rome, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
Isn't that great? Paul hadn't met these folks, and yet he was excited. He wasn't nervous about going. He wasn't ashamed about the gospel. He wanted to come see them. God had prevented him. You see his communion with God. You see his concern for this church and his commitment to preach anywhere and everywhere God sends him. In verse 14, the idea of obligation, which I just mentioned. Here's the point. Paul owed people the gospel. Can I tell you something? If you know Jesus, there are gospel obligations. Gospel obligations that we have. But I want you to notice the juxtaposition of this whole text. When I read it, I'm thinking about, man, I've got to share my faith with people. I owe people the debt of the gospel. As I've received from God the gospel, I am called to give it to other people. But was Paul downtrodden about that? He wasn't downtrodden. He was excited about it. You know, oftentimes in my own life, I will admit, and maybe you would too, Maybe, maybe this isn't an issue for you. God bless you. But oftentimes, I look at this gospel obligation. I go, man, this is hard. This is hard. I don't know how I feel about putting myself out there with my neighbor, or the person in my family that it's hard to share with. The reason that it's hard, for me at least, is because I care way too much about what people think about me or what it's going to mean in our relationship. I care way too much. And so I come up with all kinds of reasons not to share the gospel, get in somebody's life. And it doesn't mean I'm jumping out of a bush in front of my neighbor. It's not what I'm talking about, but being a gospel witness. But the, one of the drivers here oftentimes in our lives is we're, we're scared and we're nervous because we care too much about what people think or how they're going to respond and man, that's not Paul. Do you, do you know how much he's lost? You know what he says in Philippians 3? He says, I count all these things. He gives his resume and he says, I count all those things as rubbish, trash. In order that I may gain Christ. That guy had status in his community as a Pharisee. He had money. He had it all. He was on top. And yet he was willing to give it up for the sake of Christ. The surpassing value of knowing Christ. You think about the value of it. See, we owe people the gospel and what often gets in our way. It's not about really personality or how I feel. What gets, we're, we get in our own way. And the reality is, is we have to get over ourselves. And that's the beauty of Paul. He's already gotten over himself. He's all, already realized, it doesn't matter what people think about me. That doesn't mean you have to be a weirdo. All right? But it does mean we have to get past ourselves. We will never share the gospel and be gospel witnesses in the way that we live and who we share with if we can't get past ourselves. Amen? I'm talking to myself. It's interesting here. We owe people the gospel. Here's the point. We are entrusted to deliver the message and the ministry of the gospel. Not only is he obligated to share with the barbarians and the Greeks, but it also says that when he comes to Rome in verse 15, these are believers in the church. I can't wait to share the gospel with you as well. See, Paul's gospel is broad enough to both send a message of the gospel, the essential message of the gospel to people who don't believe, 
that God might be so inclined to let people come to faith, but he's also going to preach the gospel and the implications to the go- of the gospel to this church who know him. You know, we often put the gospel in this place where it's like, well, this is how a person comes to faith, and that is right. But what we do in our church every week as we preach and as we teach and as we meet is we're, and as we take communion even, we're reminding ourselves of the great truths of the gospel that it might, by the Spirit's work in our life, continue to change us. I need reminding of the truth of the gospel. I don't need to leave it in the past and behind when I came to faith in 1995. I need God. It's gospel each and every day, as Paul said to the Romans here. We are, here's the point, we are entrusted to deliver the message and ministry of the gospel. Before email, before UPS, before phones, before even the post office, there was the messengers or the Pony Express. Are you familiar with the Pony Express? These were riders who were sturdy and tough and hardworking and trained. They were trained in how to ride a horse really fast. They were trained with guns to protect themselves because they were going into hostile places to carry what? They had one job, and it was to deliver the message that was entrusted to them. You see, Paul here has a message, doesn't he, that's entrusted to him that he's going to deliver. And he didn't care really what people thought And the message wasn't about himself, it was about Christ and the new life that people could have in Christ. See, Paul existed to deliver the message. Can I ask you a question? God is, I'm I'm looking at this room and I'm looking at, at people that God has given gifts, blessings, family, jobs, careers, giftedness. And there's a lot in life that we do, all of life, unto God. So we do all of those things, all of the obligations that we have in life, unto God. But the reason that you're still breathing, the reason why God didn't take you after he converted you is so that you would deliver the message, that you would herald the message of the king. And I don't know if you feel this way or not, but you are like the Pony Express. You are his Pony Express. And you are equipped to deliver the message of the gospel, the good news to all those around you, to your children, to the people that you live next to, to the places and the networks of people that are around you. We are, while we're not Paul and we're not apostles, and we haven't been given this specific commission to these Greeks and barbarians, to the wise and the foolish, you are commissioned. We are sent. This is the message of the Great Commission, is it not? That we are a sent people to go and make disciples, calling people to do what? Obey, to obedience of the faith. We're commissioned too. So I want you to think this morning about the people around you, if you know Jesus, that God might give you opportunity, maybe not to jump out of a bush, but opportunity with grace and with gentleness to press into conversation around the gospel. And know that your flesh is going to raise its ugly head and say, I'm scared. I wonder how they're going to think about me. But remember this text when you think that. There's gospel obligation. 
that gospel obligation clearly in Paul's life did not mean joyless, pick up my, pull up my bootstraps and do this because I'm supposed to. It was joyful. He was eager to do it. I want to show you something else that will help you in this as well. Look at verse 16. Verse 16 says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for, here's the reason. Here's another reason. He's not ashamed of the gospel, so he's eager, he's joyful. Why? Because the gospel is the power of Paul? Is that what it says? No, it says the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Salvation is being delivered and rescued from your sin. So when you share the gospel with somebody and they reject it, are they rejecting you? No, they're rejecting God. Is what you say and how you say it, I mean, we need to be clear about the gospel. But what you say and how you say it is, and the, the tricks that you pull or the things that you do to share the gospel message, is that what's going to change people's hearts or is it the power of God? See, according to Paul, the burden was off of him. See, the gospel message is received when God does the work. It's his power, not our power. We're just called to be faithful. So if you go share the gospel with somebody, you can go and they reject. You may be sad about that, but you can go home and have ice cream and go, you know what? God's still faithful. He's going to do what he's going to do. And we're faithful to carry out that message. For it's the power of God to rescue Everyone who believes to the Jew first and to the Greek next. And here's more content. Because so far in the gospel, while many of you know the fullness of the gospel, so far what he's unpacked is the gospel is a declaration about the Son, and it transforms, but, but give me more. Unpackage more that I'm supposed to deliver. If I'm going to be the Pony Express and I'm going to deliver this message in a hostile world... For the gospel, I want to know more. I want to know more about what's in it. And this is what Paul gives us here in verse 16. What's in it? For in the gospel, verse 17, this is the theme verse really for the whole book that helps answer the question, how does, how does an unrighteous people become righteous? This is the start of his answer. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, literally from beginning to end, as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. See, Paul's going to spend about three chapters unpacking some of this. But when it says that the right, when it says the righteousness of God, I just want to stop because you're going to see this word a lot. It's like a hundred dollar theological term in the Bible and especially in the Book of Romans. But I want to unpack this idea of righteousness. The idea of righteousness in the scripture, it's really the same language that we get for justice, or that God is just. So first of all, God is righteous, and he, or, or he is just. That means that he's the final standard of what is right. He's the final standard of what is right, and it also means that all the things that God does are right. 
Listen to how Isaiah 45.10 says it. I am the Lord. He's speaking. God's speaking. I speak the truth and I declare what is right. So God is right. He is righteous. He's holy. He's pure. All the things that we are not. In our sin, we are unholy. We are unrighteous. We are unjust. And this is the third aspect of righteousness The aspect of righteousness that we see in this text is not only is God right and he does what's right, but he imparts or imputes, and we'll get to that, he imputes his righteousness to us, even though we don't have it. We have no righteousness. We are sinful. We are separated from God, and yet through the Son, he imputes righteousness to us that we don't deserve He doesn't do that through the law. He doesn't do that through good works. He does that through his son who is righteous and made sacrifice for sin on a cross for us. That's why the Bible says we are clothed in his righteousness, not ours. Martin Luther said that's an alien righteousness. We don't possess it, but he grants it to us by his grace through faith. You want to know why Paul was eager? You want to know why he didn't care? What people thought about him? Because of God's amazing grace that changed his sinful heart as a religious, moral person that opened his heart to believe. So for in it, the righteousness of God and the gospel is revealed from faith to faith. As it's written, the righteous shall live by his faith. This is the central theme and the central question of the book of Romans that really the the next few chapters are going to dive way deeper in. I want to get into all of it right now, but I'm going to wait. As we unpack the book, you're going to see it front and center. But what you're going to see in the next few weeks is this. There's no one righteous. There's no one righteous. No, not one. Not the Jew, not the moralist, not the heathen. Nobody, we all fall short of God's holiness, of God's righteousness. So he imparts to us what we don't possess through his son, Christ. So our confidence, therefore, in God's power to do what we cannot. Our confidence is in God's power to do what we can't. There's nothing you can do to earn God's righteousness You can't come to church enough. You can't give enough, even those are great things. You can't pray enough. Left to yourself, you are separated from God. But God in his grace has made all things right for you to know him by grace through faith. So let me ask you this. What's your confidence in, C3? Is it in your own power to save and to transform Or in his, what are you counting on? It's the biggest question that you could ask yourself ever. Because as eternal consequence, one way or the other, what is your confidence in? Who are you counting on? So the gospel is a declaration about the son who by faith transforms us, who delivers us because of God's power, not ours at work to take us from unrighteous people to righteous people to justified people. 
He declares us right. I might get in trouble if, if I'm in this text and I don't mention Martin Luther. Pastors get fired over these things. Just kidding. If you know church history a little bit, you know that Martin Luther was a, a Catholic priest. He was an Augustine monk. He was an expert in the law of God. He knew the law up and down. But what he observed in his own life when he looked at the mirror of the law through his life is he never measured up. He never could measure up. And so he, if you go read about him or even watch movies about him, he was in torment a lot of the time because he could never felt like he could, through the law, ever attain what God demanded. And he was right. But he was preparing to teach the book of Romans. And he looked at some old notes from Augustine. And Augustine, in his notes on the book of Romans, in this verse, he says that this righteousness that you see in verse 17 is not just a righteousness that God possesses, but it's a righteousness that God chooses by his grace to impart his righteousness, his justice to people who don't have it through his son. That he is saved not by trying to attain the works of the law, to measure up, but he's saved by God's grace through faith. And it rocked his world and it changed his life and he didn't care who he had to deliver that message to. And he got kicked out of the church. And the Reformation started at that place. And opened the door for people like you and me to see the gospel for what it is that had been veiled for like 500 years in the church. Here's the deal, C3. You can't pull off. I don't know if you think you can. But you can't pull off the very thing that you need the most. You need God's righteousness, and it only can be imparted to you by his grace, through faith, in his son who is righteous, who died in your place. Do you know that truth this morning? Here's your takeaway. Trust in God's gospel to transform you. Let me pray. Father, we can't talk about the gospel, the truth, and the good news of Christ enough, even if we've heard it a million times. So, Lord, I pray for maybe one here this morning that is trusting in their own ability to be made right with you. I pray that through your spirit that you would use your word, the power of the gospel, to make it clear that there's nothing that we can bring to the table that will merit any favor with you, that it's only to the cross of Christ who died in our place, who was righteous, who took our unrighteousness upon himself and shown us his grace, his amazing grace and mercy 
Let the response to that be worship. Let the response to that be a desire to serve and share. Let the response to that be hearts that are changed and transformed by the gospel. That it would affect the way we talk to our spouse and our kids, the way we interact at work, the way we interact with family, our culture. Lord, I pray that this message would do a work in our hearts this morning to be reminded, some of us, of the grace of God and the power of God through his gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.